the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, October 16th, 2020. Now, you know, one of the things that is a fairly uh, common headline, uh, if you uh, read the news uh, across the country, is that there's just a real problem with way too many people having way too few options for where to live. Uh, Homelessness is an issue that has sprung up nationwide, and you will see all sorts of uh, horrific neglect, and sometimes just outright um, antagonistic policies by some cities. Uh, you'll have places where they'll put uh, spikes under underpasses so that people can't sleep there, at least try to get out of the rain that way. It's just some weird things going on nationwide. However, here in Madison, we have great people um, sprung out of the Occupy Madison movement um, who are uh, have historically and are still Uh, working to make sure that people who are without shelter have a home. Joining us right now, Brenda Conkle. Brenda, welcome back to TMI. Thanks. So glad to hear you. Oh, absolutely. Glad to have you back. It's been (laughs) ages. Um, But uh, so I uh, was alerted by uh, taking a look online and seeing several of my friends, uh, as well as yourself, uh, involved with a new tiny house project. Uh, Can you give us some of the details on that? Sure. Um, we we had a, a grant that we had written to build some tiny houses. We knew that there was going to be a big problem coming this winter when um, basically uh, the hotels that people are staying in, a lot of people don't qualify for them. There's not enough room for everybody to be in shelter if they wanted to be. And Alder Sa- uh, Samba Balde is uh, introducing something to kick everybody out of the parks. And there just isn't enough places for people to be in shelter. So we have been looking around, trying to figure out what we were, what we could contribute to the issue. And we uh, found a, a tinier home than our tiny homes that we have at 304 North 3rd Street. It's called a Conestoga Hut. Um, and they're cheaper. They're about $2,000 instead of ours, which are about $6,000. Uh, they're a little bit smaller. They're 60 square feet instead of 98 square feet. 
Um, but they looked like something that was doable that we could build quickly um, and that we could get ready for the winter. Um, and so we had put in a proposal for that, but our proposal didn't do very well because we didn't have property. So our next step was to go out and look for some property. And we, we found a pretty good one, we thought. Um, so it's a Wiggy's Bar. Um, and so we uh, looked at it. We did a lot of research and uh, talked to the city and county and tried to figure out if we could make the project work. And still a little bit of work in progress, but we think that we've got a proposal that, you know, may work. Uh, for the county to change our temporary zoning and for the or for the city to change the temporary zoning and for the county to to give us some funding to do the project. So we're pretty excited about it. Well, that's awesome news, Brenda. Now, so we're talking about Wiggy's Bar, which is on Aberg, just on the edge of the old Oscar Meyer plant territory there. Uh, not far from Chet's Car Care, if I remember. Um, yes, right across okay. the street. <laughs> right, okay. Well, that that's, you know, and I'll tell you what, that's actually not a bad location for another reason, because that's a very quick like two, three block, maybe four block walk to the uh, to the uh, um, job center right there, the the Dane County Job Center that's right there in Aberg, and uh, there's plenty of resources to help people there as well who happen to be uh, you know having uh, less fortunate times, shall we say? Yeah, it's a it's a great location because of that, and also because the bus transfer point is right there as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep. So um, so now I'm really impressed, though. So you're saying that you were able to find something that only cut um, 30 square feet out from the other design, but, but is one third of the cost? Yeah, um, there, there's a group out in uh, Walla Walla, Washington, who are, uh, had designed this hut. They they went through several different versions of it, but they've really tried to get it down to the point where it, you know, is really efficient. Um, it's 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 warm. It's insulated. Um, we're going to be adding a heater, of course, for Wisconsin. Um, but um, it seems like it's a it's a pretty good design. Uh, the city's going to make us put them on wheels, so that's adding a little bit of cost. But um, yeah, we were able to to uh, figure something out. We built our first one this weekend, um, and you know we have some efficiencies and the building inspectors and the fire department's going to come out and take a look at it. There may be some further modifications, but um, we spent less than two thousand dollars to build it. And that included the wheels? It did, yes. Oh, that's amazing. So again, you managed to even um, take that extra expense and you're still um, a third of what the uh, the other tiny house uh, design cost. That's that's awesome. Yeah. So, and especially this has been something that's been on my mind ever since the pandemic hit uh, in March uh, here in the in Wisconsin. Um, as Because I knew, I mean, sure, they, they were going to have stays on... Um, on uh, evictions for a while, you know, and they're going to do what they could for a bit. But I'm like, this is this is not going to hold. I mean, people are right. people are not going to be able to go to work. They're not going to be able to pay their rent. This is a re. I mean, we already had an issue uh, right. in this in the area. So, and, and and you know, I mean, the the whole kicking them out of the parks thing. I, I get that when it's cold, you don't want people freezing to death out there. Which, uh, but but it's one thing to say you can't be somewhere, but it's another thing to do what you and um, and your cohorts are doing, which is actually give them somewhere to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, we've seen such a tremendous uh, transformation of the people who live in our current village. Um, you know, just seeing the 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 pride and the and the like. Um, just self-esteem that people get from, you know, having a place that they can call their own, that they can decorate the way they want, that they can, you know, shut their door and lock it. Um, 
and, you know, just have this place to be. Um, and I think everybody deserves that. And there's so many people who are just so used to being kicked around from place to place, not fitting in, not, you know, for whatever reason, you know, do you want to go to a shelter when there's COVID-19? Um, you know, there's just so many reasons why people are out there on the street and, and being forced to camp. Um, and so, you know, we just felt like we really needed to do something to help people out. Um, it's, you know, it's 30 units or 28 units, um, but it's a start. And hopefully if people like the model, maybe we can figure out something else. Awesome. All right. We are talking to Brenda Conkle and um, she's working on, uh, she's been working for years now on uh, creating tiny homes to help house the homeless here in, in um, Madison and currently working on a uh, new um plot with a new design that can even uh, make more of these for, uh, for um, uh, the same budget, like far more. Now, Brenda, if people are interested in learning more or supporting, what, where would they go? What would they do? Um, so our website is OccupyMadisonInc.com. Um, and so that you can go there. Um, I did just post a bunch of posts about, um, it takes a village to create a village. That's where you can find out about volunteering and what you can do to help. Um, if people are interested in getting a tiny home, there's some information there as well. Uh, the plans, so you can take a look at the site and see once what it's going to look like, um, are there, um, and some other information. So if you, if you want to, um, check it out, that's probably the best place to go. We also do have a Facebook page. It's, um, it is not easy to find, but if you type in OM build, um, that's usually will get you to the site or tiny right. OM tiny houses. And you know what? I'll make sure to uh, post some links on the TMI website. So uh, we'll have those out there. So if anybody is unclear on that, could check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com. I'll make sure to have some links over uh, to OccupyMadisonInc.com uh, plus the OM build uh, Facebook page. Um, but uh, but the other the other thing that, that was striking me here is and and you brought it up uh, just briefly with the fact that it's clear that this pandemic hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, we're spiking right now still here in the state of Wisconsin. Um, it's absolutely vital actually that people have a way to, if they needed to quarantine, which is one thing a 60 square foot tiny home would give them the ability to do. Yeah. You know that, yeah, that is one of the reasons why we were thinking about it. Um, trying to figure out like how can people be safe during this, during this uh, um, COVID-19 how can they be warm over the winter? How can we make sure people don't freeze? You know, just trying to solve a bunch of the problems that folks are having. There will be a shared living space. I mean, a shared space where they um, have bathrooms, laundry, showers, and a kitchen. Um, so, you know, they, they will be inside a bigger building for some of the time. And so we'll have to have some strict rules about that. But um, we're pretty confident that we'll be able to make that work. Well, yeah. And, and as you found out at the other, uh, the original uh, Occupy Madison Inc. tiny home village at Third Street there near Pennsylvania Avenue, um, right near the quick trip there, I think. Yep. Um, anyway, as you found out there, the folks who get to be in a tiny home versus being homeless are generally so very grateful that they're pretty cooperative, aren't they? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you should see the amazing things that they do. Um, our village is sustained by, we have a plant sale every year and we built a greenhouse. Um, and so a couple of our residents just love working with the plants and uh, doing that plant sale every spring. Um, we have a woodworking shop where people create uh, various things. We sell a lot of cutting boards and, and other items, um, but we also make jewelry. We've done, um, you know, 
sewing and crocheting and knitting and all kinds of things that uh, crafts that people make that we sell. And um, we're able to sustain the village just by um, all of those efforts that we have um, with our holiday sale and our plant sale. Um, uh, I, w- I wonder if a place like Bernie's Rock Shop would be interested in donating some stones they aren't using or, or don't think they can sell well just to be part of those crafts thing. That would be interesting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, um, I'm sure we'll the have to look into that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to look into that. But in any case, the point is, is that you actually have experience rather than all of the conjecture. That always goes up on these things. They all, everyone gets so nimby. The not in my backyard thing. Everyone's like, oh, no, we don't want those people there. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. You actually have experience of what people do when they get a tiny house village they can be a part of. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, we, we have a lot of things in place, too, that we're ready. Like, we've tested our community rules. We've seen what works. We've seen what doesn't work. we figured out how to, like, have community meetings where the people who are living there are actually the ones making the decision about what happens in their lives. And that just adds so much to people's, you know, self-esteem and value. Um, and really, um, during COVID, we've really found out, you know, our goal was always to have the people who live at the village really be self-governing and to kind of, you know, be running the village themselves. And during COVID, because a lot of people, you know, we, we had to shut down our store and a lot of people stopped coming to the site to respect the residents. The residents really did take over and, you know, they're really doing everything that we thought that they could do. And it's really cool to see it in action. Well, that's awesome. And um, I, I just, it's one of those things where I have always had the, uh, I've always held the opinion that human beings are at their essence good people if their needs are met. And so um, by meeting the need of shelter, you're helping these people bring the good out in themselves. Um, I mean, sure, if someone's desperate on the street and homeless, they might just be by desperation compelled to do things that we would find distasteful or unlawful by circumstance. But you have improved that circumstance and you're showing that there is goodness on average in the human beings around us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, for the people who live there work now. Um, and so they have, you know, regular jobs and, um, you know, everybody there, you know, has goals and, you know, that they're trying to accomplish, you know, some people want to buy a car, some people, you know, one person got to go visit her mother who she hadn't seen for a very long time. Um, you know, there's just, you know, it's, it really changes instead of like your everyday goal is how am I going to do my laundry? How am I going to, you know, be warm? How am I, where am I going to sleep tonight? Um, you can really change what you're trying to accomplish. And it it really just makes everything so much easier. Um, You know, people do have some struggles with mental health and alcohol issues and other things, but it's so much easier to deal with when you have a stable place to call home and you know that you've got a a supportive community around you that is going to help you figure things out. So, um, yeah, we found that it actually, you know, it works almost even better than what we had ever dreamed. Well, yeah, I mean, if you need a mental health day, and you have a place you can go and just hole up for a day while you sort yourself out, you've got it. Whereas if you're homeless and you need a mental health day, you're too bad. You got to figure out where you're going to sleep that night. And most likely that's not what your first two or three choices aren't going to be available anyway. It's, it just adds to whatever stress you're trying to deal with to begin with. It's, it's a completely counterproductive environment by comparison to a small, uh, just even a small little space, a tiny home. Now, um, Brenda, I've always been very uh, proud 
to uh, say that I, I know know you and of your activism. And of course, Occupy Madison Inc., uh, just by itself on this name uh, with OccupyMadisonInc.com, um, will give people a hint as to where this particular uh, thing started. But um, I'm just happy that you're able to use your background with helping people uh, in general to to bring this all together. Uh, the, the fruition is is marvelous. Now, as you were saying, it takes a village to raise a village, and that's uh, some of the posts you've been putting at OccupyMadisonInc.com of late. Um, are there any particular things besides uh, money that you are looking at this time that would be helpful? You know, we um, we do have lots of needs. Um, we, we did put a, a sort of a list of things that people want to volunteer. Um, right now, we're having a little bit, we're, we're trying to find a bigger space that we can um, build the houses in so that we can be inside and socially distanced. Um, so we're looking for that space right now. So that's the one thing that we need. We have a couple leads, but we haven't nailed that down yet. Um, uh, if people are interested in helping with the social media or video or pictures or um, the fundraising, we need help with all of those things. Um, we, we need people who could help coordinate volunteers. You know, this is a pretty big project and it's going to be ongoing for a couple months as we build all these houses. So, you know, even if people want to come and play a supporting role for people who are applying to um, be in the houses, that would be awesome as well. So there's lots of different opportunities. Um, we're going to start having probably next week, we'll start having some Zoom meetings where people who are interested can come hear a little bit more about the project and then um, sign up for what they want to volunteer for. So I would be watching for that. Again, you can find that stuff on our Facebook page or on our website. And we'll, we'll try to uh, keep those up to date as much as possible. And again, if somebody wants to help with social media, we'd, we'd love some help. So. Absolutely. So again, on Facebook, it's OM Build. Uh, online, it's um, OccupyMadisonInc.com. And again, I will be posting links uh, to those at TMI, TMI, TMI .com, if that's easier for you to remember. Uh, as a listener of this program, you may already have that bookmark. Please do. Um, <laughs> but um, in any case, uh, Brenda, I, uh, I got to tell you that, I, again, I'm, um, I'm impressed. I, I'm far more impressed by what you've been able to pull off in the past decade here for, for homelessness uh, than I've ever been with any politician that says, oh, yes, we've got a big problem, and then they just don't really do much. They, they acknowledge, if, if that, they acknowledge the problem and uh, at best, and then they just don't seem to do anything that actually brings home housing to the homeless. And so I'm really happy to, uh, to know and, uh, that there is an... Uh, just a, a movement out there doing that. And that, of course, you would be right there at the forefront of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it really, it, it it has taken a lot of people with a lot of different skills to kind of pull it all together. But um, it's amazing what the community can do when we work together. And, you know, even just stopping day by for a day and helping hammer in a few nails, um, you know, really just helps us move the projects along. And um, it, it's exciting. It's fun to meet everybody. Um, and you know, the, the people who live at the village are so excited. Um, they decorated it real nice for the state journal to come by and take a picture. Um, and, you know, it's really like sort of lifted the spirits of people who have been sort of like, we really need to do something, you know, and, and we didn't really know what it was that we needed to do. But this project has really, really sort of um, brought out the best in people again and, and really gives people something to look forward to and, and make people feel hopeful. 
Absolutely. And if anybody ever wanted to cynically go, oh, nothing ever came of the Occupy movement, I have <laughs> no problem pointing them over to uh, Occupy Madison and go, hey, it's still going and yeah. it is going strong. Yeah. Brenda, thank you so much for coming on and letting us know what's going on. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to join uh, Brenda and her cohorts uh, at Occupy Madison to help uh, build this new tiny house village, um, check out OccupyMadisonInc.com. Look for OM Build on Facebook or check out TMITMITMI.com for my links if you can't remember all that. Um, in any case, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. Yep, thank you. You're absolutely welcome. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, one of the things that people like to do when they are at all activist is they want to make sure that their money reflects their values, that if they spend a dollar, that they know that that dollar is doing the most possible to benefit those things they care about. That's why if you're going to spend your money, you try to make sure that it's with a business that, again, reflects your values, at least maybe at least a business that doesn't automatically oppose them. So, for example, with Home Depot being a known contributor to uh, everything Trump and uh, many other Republican uh, causes and candidates, um, there's a good reason to avoid them uh, right there. Um, Now, it can be hard when you're shopping hardware to find anything that's remotely uh, left um, politically. But, um, but again, it's one of those things where you want to make sure that your dollars aren't at the very least, um, going against your values. Now, we're not the only ones to, uh, to be concerned about this. Interestingly enough, there is a new majority black and Latinx owned and operated digital bank. That's right. Um, This bank hopes to make supporting Black-owned banks and businesses a little easier for consumers. Kind of like the Home Depot reference, what if you knew that there was a big box hardware out there that actually actively gave um, to uh, causes like environmental protection and and, uh, universal health care and things like that? I, I know I can dream out about that, but, but, but this is a reality. Greenwood, as it's called, was created by Bounce TV founder Ryan Glover and his close friend, rapper-activist Mike, that is Killer Mike, Render. That's right. You've heard Killer Mike, right? He and Bounce TV Ryan Glover's founded digital bank Greenwood. The leadership team at Greenwood, which includes former Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young, unveiled their new platform on Thursday after raising more than $3 million in seed funding in June. Glover's been working on Greenwood since early 2019, but he said interest in the venture spiked after the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis sparked the nationwide reckoning with racism that has inspired many Americans, including many in the corporate world, to support Black-owned businesses and financial institutions. Now, while this bank won't open until January of 2021 here, the company launched its website on Thursday, and there's already a waiting list for those who want to open a Greenwood account. Glover told CNN Business, I'll I'll say that we're in the tens of thousands. That number's increasing by the day. Now, what is Greenwood? Well, you may have heard of its competitors out there, Chime, Aspiration, Money Lion, or, or Vero, Greenwood is a digital bank whose financial services, including checking and savings accounts, mobile uh, deposits, peer-to-peer transfers, all of them are fulfilled almost entirely online. The bank offers a global ATM network, Apple and Android pay services, two-day advances on paychecks for customers who sign up for direct deposit. Unlike the other 
digital banks I just mentioned, though. Greenwood's target audiences are Black and Latinx communities and anyone who wants to support Black-owned businesses. Glover says the bank will specialize in financing Black and Latinx entrepreneurs who typically have a much harder time securing loans from mainstream commercial banks. Glover said, in order to build wealth, you need bank capital. We will identify qualified entrepreneurs, business owners, and creatives to equip them with the capital needed to make their dreams a reality. Now, Greenwood is named after the former Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, an early 20th century African-American business community that was so prosperous it was nicknamed Black Wall Street. A mob of white Americans destroyed the Greenwood District during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Now, while it is a fictionalized account, if you do want to see um, a recent example of the uh, 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and um, an interesting fictionalized uh, alternate history afterwards, uh, the Watchmen series that uh, was on HBO. Uh, this past year or two, uh, actually, um, the plotline centers around that. And it's, in my opinion, at least, very good science fiction slash superhero uh, TV. Um, and it's uh, very good at uh, painting the reality of race relations. But 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 I digress. So, as we said, Greenwood is named after uh, the Tulsa, Oklahoma district known as the Black Wall Street. Now. Why would you want to bank black, if you will? Well, before it was destroyed nearly a century ago, um, Glover said that a dollar spent in Tulsa's Greenwood District would circulate 36 times before leaving that community. Now, why is that important? Well, okay. If you spend a dollar and it immediately gets put into the account of someone who takes it out of the community and away it goes. What that means is, is that your money is going to make people rich elsewhere, but it's not helping your local community. It's not helping the people that you directly work with every day. And most likely it's going to get put in a billionaire's vault. Uh, that's, that's one of the, uh, downsides to billionaireism, many downsides there be, but this is one of the primary ones, is the hoarding of the wealth. Very much like a hoarder of any other kind has an unhealthy amount of items just gumming up the space that they happen to live. A billionaire is a financial hoarder. They actually drain the system of wealth only for their own benefit. It's It's not good. Anyway, Killer Mike said that today, a dollar generally will circulate for 20 days within the white community before exiting it, but only six hours in the black community. Six hours. So what, what that means is that for every dollar that a white person earns, it stays bouncing around white-owned businesses and etc. Uh, for about 20 days, you know, going from pocket to pocket, going from business to business, uh, going from business to employee to business to employee, you know, having an effect on people's lives, often positive, uh, for about 20 days. But if a black person gets a dollar, 
that stays in the possession of the black person and in the black community for about six hours and then off it goes. Now, black Americans are twice as likely to be denied mortgage loans by traditional banks. But minority depository institutions have a better track record of lending to non-white individuals. Killer Mike said, This lack of fairness in the financial system is why we created Greenwood. I mean, think about it. If you aren't white, it's not supposed to be this way. But the fact is, is that it's still so much easier to get the kind of financial backing you need to try to make a run of things in the society than if you are any other race or color. That's all there is to it. Now, Glover points out that Americans have been banking online almost exclusively at higher rates in recent years. It's a trend major commercial banks have been very slow to embrace, and a sector that Glover says hasn't done much to reach out to minorities. Glover said there were no digital banking solutions that catered to the African-American or Latinx communities until the founding of Greenwood. Now, in 2017, about 17% of black Americans didn't have any bank account at all, compared to only 3% of white Americans. That's a 14% difference if you're having math trouble there. And that's according to a study by the FDIC. Now, there are only 23 minority-owned banks in the U.S. today. You might think that sounds like a healthy number, but believe me, compared to the, you know, thousands of non-minority-owned banks, it's it's not just in the minority. It's almost microscopic in proportion. Now, Glover says those brick-and-mortar institutions, the 23 minority-owned banks that are non-digital, have done a fairly good job supporting minority communities over the years. But that, you know, today is a new day. He said, we believe there's an opportunity to continue to super serve our community by creating a digital bank that maybe the traditional African-American Latinx banks just don't understand, he said. We certainly know the traditional larger banks don't understand our community. Now, Glover founded Bounce TV in 2010 before it was sold to TV station owner EW Scripps in 2017, an acquisition deal that included two other networks for $292 million, according to Deadline. The self-described serial entrepreneur was inspired to create Greenwood in 2018 after noticing his son and daughter did all of their banking online. He said, I believe... Digital banking is the wave of the future, not just something that's popular now. And he wants to make sure that the black and Latinx communities aren't left behind as the future comes calling. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
and we're back. TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, as a listener to TMI, um, I do everything I can to provide you with accurate information, trying to dispel a lot of the spin that you get in the media, um, both right-wing and supposedly left-wing. Um, and so I, I would hope that at the very least I assist in making sure that as a listener to uh, my program, you are uh, not plagued by misinformation, that, that basically you uh, have at least one resource where that isn't the case. However, Time Magazine, um, in their October uh, 19th issue, had an article uh, entitled How a Road Trip Through America's Battlegrounds Revealed a Nation Plagued by Misinformation. Now, um, this is by Charlotte Atler, uh, the uh, piece that I'm reference, referring here to. And she says, A lifetime ago, on September 14th, Greg Van Lindehem sat outside a cafe in Holly, Michigan, and explained that he planned to vote for the president's re-election because he saw the race as a contest between two bad options. We've got a guy trying not to die, he told me, and we've got Trump. The candidate that Greg described as trying not to die was Joe Biden, the 77-year-old former vice president who's been dogged by right-wing attacks on his mental acuity. But now, the guy trying not to die might well be the 74-year-old president who was being treated with supplemental oxygen and battery of drugs after contracting COVID-19, a lethal virus that can cause everything from pneumonia to strokes to neurological impairment. Now, Greg, this 37-year-old home builder, is a social and fiscal conservative, but he didn't vote for Trump four years ago and considers the president a buffoon. If anyone's mind was going to be changed by Trump's diagnosis, you know, you might have thought it would be him. But Greg was unfazed. I think it's unfortunate, he said, after uh, he recalled his opinion on the latest updates but it's something that the vast majority of the population is going to come down with at one point or another. He still isn't considering voting for Biden. Now, this might not be surprising. Uh, once again, history was unfolding in Washington. Once again, voters seem to be reacting with a collective shrug. If there's one constant in this extraordinary presidential election, it's that every time the political class declares that a news event will permanently reshape the race, it usually seems to evaporate into the ether. The president could be impeached for abuse of power, publicly muster white supremacists, tear gas, peaceful protesters for a photo op, pay less than his employees in taxes, declare that he'd refuse to accept the results of the election, hold a possible super spreader event in the White House. Millions of Americans will just ignore it. To roughly half of us, all of this is an outrage, and to the other half, meh. Now, how voters are processing Trump's behavior at this fractured moment may be the most important question of the 2020 election, but it's a tricky one to answer in the midst of a pandemic that has turned the campaign into one interminable Zoom call. It's hard to get a read on a race that has limited travel for both candidates and reporters, a contest with countless polls, but very few insights, lots of speeches but few crowds, you know, plenty of talking heads, but few ordinary voices. So in September, um, 
there was a three-week trip where this reporter here drove across battleground states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, trying to get a fix on what's happening between the ears of the people most likely to determine the winner on November 3rd. Now, the longer this trip went, and the more people that the reporter met, the more they noticed something deep and unpredictable seemed to be lurking beneath the surface. Something that you couldn't be sure was reflected in the polling data. Something that maybe couldn't be measured at all. While, you know, our, our daily lives are filling up with news about wildfires engulfing the West Coast, news about Trump reportedly calling fallen soldiers losers and suckers, news about the death toll from COVID-19 passing 200,000, news of Trump's admitting to journalist Bob Woodward on tape that he'd intentionally downplayed the virus, purportedly to avoid causing a panic. Um, but almost nobody seemed to be talking about those headlines. And when asked about them, people often didn't believe them or, or didn't care. It was like being caught in a chasm between the election as it was being reported and the election as it was being experienced by the voters. Now, most Trump voters that were met had clear, well-articulated reasons for supporting him. He'd lowered their taxes, appointed anti-abortion judges, presided over a soaring stock market. These voters wielded their rationality as a shield. Their goals were sound, and the president was achieving them. So, didn't it make sense to ignore the tweets, the controversies, the media frenzy? But there was a darker strain to this. For every say, two people who offered a rational and informed reason why they were supporting Biden or Trump. There was another, almost always a Trump supporter, who offered an explanation divorced from reality. You could call this persistent style of untethered reasoning unlogic. Unlogic is not ignorance or stupidity. It's a reason that's distorted by suspicion and misinformation an Orwellian state of mind that arranges itself around convenient fictions rather than established facts. At its most acute, unlogic has manifested itself as a belief in dangerous falsehoods from the cult of QAnon to the conviction that COVID-19 is a hoax. But the milder forms of unlogic were more pervasive still, believing that, for example, most reports about the president were fabricated by lying reporters, which they're not. Uh, or that Biden is a socialist, <laughs> oh, please. Um, or that the coronavirus was no worse than the flu, as Trump often insists, and it's it's far far more deadly. Uh, Trump even admitted to Bob Woodward in audio recordings that I played here on TMI a few weeks back when Bob Woodward's book was coming out. In those recordings, Trump himself said that, according to uh, what they saw. Uh, back in February, that the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, was five times as deadly, at least, as the flu. Um, anyway, Unalogic erupted on the left after Trump's COVID diagnosis with liberals online speculating Trump is faking his illness, which, according to every uh, every re uh, you know reliable source, he isn't. So with so many voters ignoring the headlines, it became increasingly hard to tell where most Americans fall on the continuum from reason to unlogic. In the absence of agreed-upon facts, the possibility of consensus itself seemed to be disappearing. And that's an unsettling effect. Now, most of the time, voters reacted to news events in ways that conformed to what they already believed. 
For example, when um, when Eddie Kabasinski, a city council member in Warren, Michigan, in mid-September was interviewed, um, he referred to the mask that was being worn and said, so you're saying the air we breathe outside, there's something wrong with that? That's kind of like, you're not all there. We need to get back to reality. Once Trump had been hospitalized with COVID-19, he was recontacted by the reporter, only to be found in the middle of what was called a MAGA drag, a procession of cars waving Trump flags as they cruised down I-75. He said, It does no good for our commander-in-chief to be showing cowardice and wearing a mask. He's the president of the United States. Nobody has the right to question him. Now... Democracy, at least in theory, relies on rational electorates acting in response to credible information. Since the dawn of mass media, elections have been shaped by voters' reactions to the news. But as this trip proceeded through the three states that decided the 2016 election by a little less than 80,000 votes, you could sense a glitch in the information loop like a scratch on an old-fashioned record. People kept repeating things that were false and dismissing things that were true. Over the course of the three weeks, Nearly 200 people were spoken to by the report, Time uh, magazine reporter of all political persuasions. There were Biden diehards and Trump Republicans, tepid Democrats, old-fashioned conservatives, and even the elusive undecided voter. Speaking to Wisconsinites in the conservative suburbs of Milwaukee and the streets of Kenosha, where the windows downtown were boarded up and spray-painted with phrases like, love is the answer, after nights of racial justice protests, um... You found a number of these folks. Michiganders were in the swinging counties uh, surrounding Detroit and the red to blue districts near Flint. Pennsylvanians in the suburbs around Pittsburgh and bellwether Luzerne County. The reporter approached voters on sidewalks and in grocery stores and as they waited in line for restaurant tables. Conspiracy theories like QAnon, this perverse delusion that Trump is the final defense against a deep state cabal of Democrats and Hollywood elite who traffic and rape children, uh, kept cropping up in conversations. Two women in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, uh, said that the cabal was running tunnels under the U.S. to traffic children so elites could torture them and drink their blood. When you checked into an airport hotel in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for example, the night manager made small talk about politicians running a pedophile ring as he directed one to the elevator. The day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, two women were asked, while carrying Trump face masks in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, what they thought of the late Supreme Court justice. They would only give their first names, Kelly and Karen, because they did not trust the media. I think we've been lied to. She died last year, Kelly said. I'm furloughed, so I have a lot of time to research things, Karen added, that they both watch OANN, a pro-Trump news network. That's one American news network. Uh, because I'm fed up with being blasted every day, people telling me how I should think, how I should feel. Kelly added, OANN is like dry toast. They just give you the facts. <laughs> like, like... Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying a year before it's reported? Really? Michael Thomas, as he returned his shopping cart after a trip to Walmart in Sterling Heights, Michigan, a 41-year-old, by the way, who works in automotive plant deliver or paint delivery, I should say, pardon me, listed 
all the reasons he planned to vote for Trump again. He's a Christian who opposes abortion and backs the Second Amendment. But also, I believe in Q and Pizzagate, he said, referring to the conspiracy theory that Democrats traffic children out of the basement of a D.C. pizza parlor. Where does he find this information? He shrugged and pulled out his keys. The Internet, he said simply. The fact that a growing segment of the electorate has gone off the deep end is as much a concern to many Republicans as it is to Democrats. Tyler Brown, a former digital director for the Republican National Committee, who is now president of Hadron Strategies, said, The only constant for a lot of voters has been choose your own reality. Broadly speaking, Republican voters are less likely to accept what they read in the mainstream media on face value. He added, I can see how that worldview can start to make people feel like they're existing within two different realities. Now, a 30-year-old nanny in Macomb County, Michigan, Caitlin Martin, a politically purple region, by the way, north of Detroit, Macomb County is, um, Caitlin was one of the few people uh, met by the reporter who professed to be truly undecided about how to vote this year. After all, she really dislikes Trump. She said, I don't respect someone who can be so unkind to people. On the other hand, she's seen some things online that give her pause about Biden. I don't know what's real and what's Photoshop, she said. Is it dementia or is it his stutter? In a year or two, is he going to deteriorate? Now, everybody's out there saying he's a pedophile. She's not sure she believes any of it. All of these suspicions are like swirling clouds in a monster hurricane, tearing through the possibility of consensus in American democracy, chewing up the guardrails, ripping out the precedents, a hurricane going nowhere with nothing at its center. The chaos and confusion can feel overwhelming, according to Rolando Molares, a stay-at-home dad who's retired from the medical software industry in, out of Racine, Wisconsin. He said, you're so sick of everything, you don't know what to trust anymore. Now, Morales voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and his wife and father-in-law are pro-Biden, but the violence over the summer in Kenosha made him wonder if he should vote for Trump. He doesn't even know what to think anymore. He said, it feels like there's a new America being created, and I don't know who's cut out to deal with it. We've headed somewhere different now, and I don't know where. Now, distrust of the establishment has always existed in America. Historian Richard Hofstadter famously called it the paranoid style, but now it's amplified by social media networks whose algorithms reward extremism and championed by a misinformation warrior who happens to serve as the president of the United States. In a study of more than 38 million articles about the pandemic, researchers at Cornell University recently found that President Trump was the single biggest driver of false information about the coronavirus. A major Harvard study released a major Harvard study released in October found that Trump had perfected the manipulation of mass media to spread false information about mail-in voting and that the president was an even bigger source of disinformation than Russian bots or Facebook clickbait artists. No wonder, then, that so many Americans are caught in the confusion, unsure what to believe. Now, this is the very problem that at least I attempt to run TMI counter to. It is true that I call this show the cure for the common media, but the fact is that the common media has changed since this program started. In 2009, the common media was, you know, Fox, as well as uh, MSNBC, 
um, on each side. You had CNN. Basically, you had corporate media. And you still do. Oh, you still do. All trying to tell you what the corporations want you to uh, think about and trying to uh, make you look where they want you to look and not look at what they're doing. But um, in the years since, it is true that social media has grown tremendously in its power to distort what's going on. So if you want to see the world for how it is, my advice has always been and still remains that you need to just close your eyes for a moment. Breathe deeply. Find that center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Then you'll be ready to see the world much more clearly. And at that point, all you'll need to do is... Oh!